We're continuing our series through the book of James. The title of the series is on the screen behind me, Real Faith. And we have seen over the last few weeks that the word faith in your New Testament is the same word for belief. So when we say real faith, it is about real belief. And the question is, is what we say we believe genuine, authentic, real? And the five chapters of the book of James give us a number of tests in order to determine the authenticity of our profession of faith. We've had a couple of weeks off as we enjoyed and benefited from, I'm sure you did as I did, the ministry of our associate pastor, Pastor Matt, which we appreciate very much. He and Erica and their little ones are away this weekend for a much-needed three days away. They're in uh, Chicago, and they'll be returning this evening. One of the many talents that my dear wife, Kimmy, has is planning enjoyable, memorable, fun, and yet relatively inexpensive getaways for our family. She started doing that before the girls were born, and she put it into overdrive after the the girls came. And one of the places that she found for us was a bed and breakfast in Lowell, Michigan. That's near Grand Rapids. And that bed and breakfast had a barn, and they had uh, some animals that they kept there. And so the girls were delighted with Dexter the donkey and Petunia the pig. And Lainey was about one, one and a half when we first went. She was just starting to talk. She loved the pig. She couldn't say Petunia. She called the pig Tunu. And the following year when we went back, you know, Tunu had been fatted. And it's a breakfast place. There were some goats, including cute little baby goats. There was even a llama that they named Dolly, Dolly the llama. And the owners of that bed and breakfast were a non-pretentious older couple, Bill and Artis Barber. And they had a knack for making you feel very welcome. And they would visit with you just long enough to get you to know you, or as we would return six or seven times over the years, to just catch up a bit. But they would do that without being intrusive upon you and those who were with you or upon your plans. And we and our girls just loved going there. One year we got word that the barbers had sold the place and that another younger couple had taken it over and they were anxious to keep it going. We scheduled another visit. We even took some friends with us who were from our parent church. That was before we started this church. We met the wife of that couple who purchased it that first evening that we were there. And she did what Artie would often do. She met with us in the main parlor and she, she chatted. And we enjoyed talking to her. We told her where we were from, how many times we'd been there, and so on. Now, I said we enjoyed talking to her. Well, that was for the first 15 minutes or so. After that, there was about an hour and a half, and all of it, and I mean all of it, was about her and her family and her husband's other job and their wealth and their interests and their vacations Ad infinitum, it seemed. Ad nauseum, it certainly was. And during that entire ordeal, 
I'd interrupt with stuff like, okay, we've kept you long enough. Or some other phrase, you know, to get rid of her, but to no avail. And all the while, I'm looking at Kimmy and our friends with a look that they understood to mean, I'm going to choke this woman. (laughs) And were it not for the headlines that were flashing through my mind, pastor strangles B&B host in front of parishioners, I may have indeed carried it through. I did come within a whisker of interrupting her and saying, Well, enough about us. Tell us about yourself. That was our first and only visit to the B&B under the new owners. Our beloved bed and breakfast is no more, having lasted only a year or so. Go figure. At our church office, there is a lady who... Whenever she talks about her grown children, she always makes sure to remind you that they all graduated from Notre Dame. And when she does that bragging, I'm just telling you honestly what goes through my mind. I'm thinking something like, Notre Dame's not a bad place to go if you can't get into college. But I restrain myself. Now, I'm tempted to say stuff like that. You know, enough about us. Well, if you can't get into college, because I'm a sinner and a smart aleck sinner to boot. And yet the gal at the bed and breakfast was doing, to excess to be sure, but she was doing what most of us like to do. And the lady at the office does what many of us often do, and we would do much more if it weren't for the demands of etiquette or fear of being strangled by the pastor. Why is it that we like to do that stuff? Why is it that we like to go on and on about us and about our accomplishments? Why do we trumpet ourselves and what we've done? Well, we talk about ourselves, friends, because we are proud of ourselves. And we're proud of ourselves when, in our minds at least, what we've done is the measure of success. But the truth is, none of us really likes a braggart. So we might not actually say how highly we think of ourselves, but we often think it. Either way, whether in our minds or with our mouths, if we measure ourselves by our own standard of accomplishment, then we'll fail to measure ourselves according to God's standard. And in James chapter 1, we're confronted with this very danger of evaluating ourselves according to an insufficient standard and then in turn taking pride in our success in meeting that standard. Now we're confronted with it for this reason. James has just told us in verses 19 through 25 about the centrality of the Word of God to the life of the Christian. Verse 19, you'll be reminded, tells us that we need to be quick, ready, eager to listen to what God says to us in His Word. Verse 21 tells us that this should be natural for us because when we were supernaturally born again, it was by the Word that was, verse 21 says, planted in us. And therefore, verse 22 says, famously, be doers of the Word and not merely hearers. So here's the danger. You and I can 
do what we're told in verses 19 through 25. And we can look at what the Word says to do, and then we can begin to actually do many of the most obvious and perhaps easiest things. And so the Bible says, be doers, not hearers only. And so the Word of God says to read the Word of God, and we start doing that. Or the Word of God, the Bible says to pray, and we start doing that. Or the Word of God tells us to attend church and to do so faithfully and regularly. We start doing that. The Bible says to give even something about 10%, and so we start doing that. In short, in doing what the Bible says, you and I can become religious activists. Doing many of the things the Bible says to do, but hear this, but failing to implement many other less obvious requirements. And as a result, we can see ourselves as successful because we've used an insufficient standard. I'm spiritual. I'm Christ-like because I read the Bible. I'm pleasing to God because I pray, or because I go to church, or because I give money. And God warns against that, beginning in verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious, and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now that's a different standard, isn't it? And we need God's help in pursuing that standard, not the false standard that we often set up and call religion. And so let's bow together and ask God to help us as we look at His standard of evaluation for us. Father, as we come to this passage in Your Word, we are humbled and stricken by the fact that we erect false standards and easier standards, more obvious standards than You have set up for us. Help us, Lord, to be reminded today that it's not our standard but yours that matters. Lord, we ask you to grant us the grace to see what we need to change and the power to implement it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, there is some biblical precedent for, you know, my attitude toward people when they are obviously just bragging about themselves. I say some biblical precedent, only, only some. But there is a passage where Jesus confronted people who liked to brag about themselves, particularly, particularly those who liked to brag about their religious accomplishments. And Jesus sought to put them in their place time and again. Here's what the Bible says. To some who were confident of their own righteousness, and they looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. Now we're going to go on. Some of you may not know what a Pharisee is, but a Pharisee was an exalted, highly respected religious leader in New Testament times. And so a religious guy, a highly religious guy, and a tax collector, one of the most despised occupations in the Bible. 
seen as traitors against God's people, the Jews, because they were working to collect taxes for the hated Romans. So two men go to the temple to pray, one a respected religious leader, another a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed. Notice, even in his prayer, it's about who? Jesus says he prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I do these religious things. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But in contrast to the proud, bragging accomplishments of the religious man, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. And then Jesus goes on to say, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, I want you to see in the outline that we've supplied for you in your program that we tend to evaluate ourselves by our accomplishments. We evaluate ourselves by our accomplishments. And you see this, perhaps especially, but certainly in the world of religion. I'm holding in my hand a letter written in February of 2009. It's out on the Internet, so it's widely, widely available. This letter is written by a guy who became a multimillionaire Christian businessman. And he used a good portion of his wealth to help Christian causes, including founding a, a college in Indiana that has his name on it. The college is named after him. Well, some things have happened in later years at the college that he does not approve of, and he is writing this open letter for everybody to know that he does not approve of what's going on at this college that he helped to found and, in fact, has his name on it. And so he says in this letter that's to go out to everybody, he first talks about his partner who co-founded it with it, the college with him, and he says, he, my partner, built and left behind $70 million worth of buildings and property. And then he goes on to say, I'd like to share with you what the Holy Spirit is doing through my life. As of December 31, 2008, 10,300,000 people have been saved, mostly through the works of our college, and he mentions a couple of graduates and here's what he says about those graduates. Each week I receive a fax from these men showing the results from the daily personal soul winners that I support financially at approximately $500,000 per year. So, all these people are being saved because I'm giving money. Then he says, I have helped build 10 Bible colleges. I have helped build 900 churches. I have given over $35 million over the years. And then he says, I have never known of nor read of two men that God has used to bring more souls to Christ than him 
and his college co-founder. And it goes on. That's kind of called humble bragging. And yet it goes on all the time. And in verse 26, we are told, if anyone thinks of himself as religious. And when it says there in verse 26, also in verse 27, religious or religion, it's describing an individual who carefully performs religious ceremonies and who feels satisfied that as a result of that, he's obedient to the demands of the Word of God. And yet God has much higher demands than just doing the stuff that we call religion. And God has confronted this for centuries with his people. Going back to the first part of your Bible that we call the Old Testament. I'm going to give you a number of passages so that to underscore how seriously God takes this. God says through the prophet Isaiah, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And in the New Testament, Jesus quotes that very passage from Isaiah, again confronting the hypocritical religious leaders, the braggarts of his day. The Bible tells us some religious leaders came to Jesus and they asked, why do your followers break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. But Jesus replied, you hypocrites, Isaiah, when he was right, when he prophesied about you, these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teaching, teachings are but rules taught by men. Don't you see, Jesus says, that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. Because of this tendency to look at what we do religiously, external rituals where we go through the motions very often, but consider ourselves to have attained a Christ-like standard, because of that danger, Jesus told his first followers, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show men they're fasting. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. We look at the external stuff. We like to impress people with the external stuff. And that's because we don't see as God sees. Going back to his principle given in 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. And once again through the prophet Isaiah. God castigates those who are called by his name for their external, simply ceremonial worship of him. The multitude of your sacrifices, says God, what are they to me? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. 
Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Now notice, right is seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow, says the Lord. This means, friends, we have to be extremely careful in evaluating ourselves by simply the performance of religious duties and erecting for ourselves rules that we believe are our measure of success. God warns us over and over about being religious, but not being Christ-like. He warns us as well that very often the rules that we erect for ourselves designed to keep us from sin have no power to restrain the indwelling sin that abides in all of us. Colossians chapter 2. Do not handle. There's a rule. Do not taste. Do not touch. A number of rules. And here's what Paul says about them. Such regulations lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, I'll just pause to quickly say I believe it is necessary in the Christian life to have standards for ourselves. I have them for myself. We have them for our family. I believe it is necessary and it is good. But we must be ever careful that we do not mistake adherence to those standards for Christ-likeness and spirituality. And because such confidence is placed in the rule-keeping, and the ceremonies that we go through, often perfunctorily. It is why, friends, I believe legalistic religion falls often into the most heinous and shocking kinds of sin. We have seen this in the last several years in Roman Catholicism, have we not? Keep the rules, go through the ceremonies, but that's not able to restrain the sensual impulses of those who engage in them, is it? But certainly not just Roman Catholicism. (laughs) Any teaching that is legalistic, that is set up as do this and you will be right, is susceptible to the same thing. Over the next few weeks in our Discovering God Hour, starting next week, I'm going to going to begin to show you some of the things that have been going on in horrendous ways under the label Baptist as well. And one of the things that virtually all of them have in common is they teach a version of Christianity that is legalistic, ceremony, rule-oriented. God said through the prophet Micah, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what is it that the Lord requires of you? Act justly. Love mercy. And to walk humbly before your God. 
That's God's standard. And yet we measure ourselves against false standards, and then we think we're okay, and we think we're Christ-like. As long as we see ourselves as being okay, hear this, friends, we will not see our need for Jesus. And so God gives us a better, a more accurate measure. We evaluate ourselves by our accomplishments, but I say secondly in your outline, we should evaluate ourselves by our obedience. We evaluate ourselves by our accomplishments, but we should evaluate ourselves by our obedience. Obedience to God's Word requires much more than external performance. Notice what verse 26 says. If anyone thinks himself religious, but then notice what it says. But he does not keep a tight rein on his tongue. Okay, so you, I, think ourselves to be religious. We're good with God because we do the stuff. And James says, not so fast. When I talk about being a doer of the word and not merely a hearer, I am not saying simply find some of the commands, even, even most of the commands in the Bible, begin to do them, and then think you're okay. It goes much deeper than that. In fact, it goes to our thoughts, it goes to our words, not just our deeds. And so if anyone considers himself to be religious, but he fails to keep a tight rein on his tongue, he is deceived. And so, obedience to God's Word requires much more than external performance. It means that we are to be careful, I say in your outline, careful in relation to our speech. If you're going to be Christ-like, if I'm going to be Christ-like, it's going to go to the extent of how I talk. Now, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 of James is all about our words and the use of the tongue. So we will have occasion to talk about this at length at that time. But for now, understands, friends, that there is nothing more unattractive than an external Christian who judges others all the while their lack of Christ-likeness is evident in their speech in their lack of love for others, and in the fallen values that dictate their life. life. The gospel gives us humility to shut our mouths, to stop bragging about ourselves, to stop extolling our own supposed virtues. Do you remember when Job met with God God spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. And in the last chapter of the book of Job, Job chapter 42, after God has spoken to Job, the Bible says Job covered his mouth. How can I speak to you? The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 that before the law of God, every mouth will be stopped. We will stop extolling how great we are and all that we've accomplished when we understand ourselves in humility in relation to a holy God 
And we'll stop speaking in judgmental terms about others who don't meet the measure that we have set up. We'll stop contrasting and comparing ourselves with others. We'll stop cutting others down in order to elevate ourselves. And if we're honest, those of us who are religious know that we have done that. I know that I have done that. And God condemns it. We're to be careful in relation to our speech. Let me give you an illustration. Suppose you have a Christian living in a neighborhood and this professing Christian is speaking with one of her neighbors. And she's speaking with her neighbor. Uh, She says, you know, what's the deal with the guy down the street? He's always got that motorcycle out in his driveway. You know, there's oil on his driveway. The yard's kind of unkempt. What is his story? And then the guy says, you know, I don't even know, I don't know who that is. Well, do you know anything about the people across the street? I mean, the guy, you know, he's a little, I just think he's a little strange. I think he's a little weird. You know, I think he might be a little, maybe not completely straight. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't, I don't really know. And then there's these people a couple doors down from them. And they, they were married, but I haven't seen the wife around in a long time. But I see a chick coming in and out. You know what's going on? No, no, I don't. Hey, the neighbor says, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah. How'd you know? Well, I saw that fish symbol on the back of your car. And I see you get in your car and go somewhere the same time every Sunday morning, I assume you're going to church. Well, you know, I just came to Jesus myself. I was involved in a Bible study at work. And a guy gave the gospel, and I realized I was a sinner, and I embraced Jesus as my, as my Savior. It just happened a couple months ago. Well, really? Well, where do you go to church? Well, I don't, I don't even know where to find a church. I don't know where to go to go to church well how can you be a christian if you don't go to church do you do you read the bible every day well you know it's i don't even know where to start well how can you be a christian if you don't read the bible do you pray regularly this is all new to me i don't know i don't know how to pray well how can you be a christian now i ask you Which is worse? This Christian who has it all down, who goes to church, does his or her devotions, prays multiple times a day, knows the lingo, but judges and gossips about those who need Jesus in her neighborhood? Versus this guy who's just trying to feel his way around in his newfound faith. I tell you what God's verdict is on that. God says, if you think you're religious, you have deceived yourself. If you're in that category. And my fear is we have many, many, many professing Christians who fit in that category. Those people are weird. But not me, because I go to church. 
because I pray, because I know the lingo, because lingo, I read my Bible. If we're going to be obedient, as God describes it, then we're going to have to do so in relation, be careful in relation to the way we talk in our speech. But secondly in your outline, it's going to show itself in our compassion in relation to others. Verse 27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. When it says to look after, it means to meet the needs of, the needy. To be willing to meet the needs of, of those who are in distress, and it singles out orphans and widows. Now, it does so for this reason. Throughout the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, God tells his people Israel, if you're going to represent me, if you're going to reflect my character to an unlooking world, then you are going to be a people who take up the cause of those who cannot take up their own cause. And chief among those people in that category are the fatherless, and the widows. Now why the fatherless? Why not the motherless? Orphans. But particularly the fatherless, literally. Well, it's because it was a patriarchal society. If you didn't have a man, you didn't have anything. You didn't have social security to take care of you after your husband died. Or after your father died. So you were particularly vulnerable. And it was a perfect test case for the compassion of God's people. The fatherless and the widow, orphans and widows. And so the Bible says this. The Lord your God is, a God, is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great God, mighty and awesome. Who shows no partiality and he accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. Now, I'm just going to say this real quick, and then you all can shoot me later. But friends, we need to remember what that says during this political season. I'm, I'm concerned about how harsh Christians are toward those who don't have. And God says, this is how I view the alien and those who need food and clothing. God says of himself, I'm a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. This is God in his holy dwelling. Now, one more sort of political statement, and I'm done with that. The fatherless, orphans, and widows are people who are victims that's different, and the Bible differentiates between that and someone who refuses to help his or herself. In fact, the Bible says this in the New Testament. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. So we're talking about people who are victimized, who need help, and God is a God of compassion toward the needy. And he calls us to reflect his character in his world by being likewise. 
Those who do that do so because they have cultivated that kind of a heart over years of walking with God. And then when a need arises, they don't have to think about it. They just do it. In 1569, Dirk Willems escaped from a Dutch prison. He had been imprisoned simply because he was what was called an Anabaptist. That meant that someone needed to be re-baptized. If they were baptized as an infant, they had to profess their own faith and then follow the Lord in baptism. So he was someone who believed the church was made up only of professing believers. He escaped this Dutch prison. He fled across a frozen lake and he was pursued by a prison guard. Half starved from prison rations, Willems crossed the lake safely, but the guard fell through the ice into freezing water. Willems immediately turned back and pulled him out. The guard wanted to release Willems, but by then a prison supervisor had arrived on the scene. And Willems was arrested and tortured and burned at the stake. He didn't have time to decide on the right thing to do. He reacted in a moment. That's a sign of Christian character. It's a sign that grace has become a habit. It's the harvest of daily weeding out sin and planting grace. And one author says this of Willems. For Mennonites, that's a variety of Anabaptists, no other story has so captured the imagination. What Dirk did on that icy pond was reflexive. He didn't have to stop and think whether it was right or wrong or what the consequences would be. He simply did what his faith compelled him to do. Willem's spontaneous response to someone in need comes only from a heart undivided. Friends, we do not meet God's requirement in verse 27 of looking after those who need our help. If we only engage, if we only get involved when it's convenient for us, rather than when it's best for others. If you make your decisions always and only based upon, does it fit into my schedule, is it convenient for me? Then you're not demonstrating Christ-like, God-like character, no matter how many church services you attend and how many times you pray and read your Bible. I know people in this church, thanks be to God, who I've just found out through my interactions with folks who have that kind of heart, cultivate that kind of heart of grace. I just heard about a family this week that let someone borrow their, just borrow their car. You need a car. We'll figure it out. I know a family in our church. They have children. They could have more children. They're thinking about adopting a child. Not because there's a particular child. Not because they can't have more children. Simply because there are children who are orphaned and who are in need. I'm going to tell you a quick story that may at first sound like it violates what I said at the beginning, bragging. But I hope you'll see that that's not the case. But several years ago, many years ago, God presented 
a situation in my own life where my nephews needed a place to live overnight. They were in fifth and sixth grade. I had had a relationship with them since they were toddlers. And their mother went on a drug binge and abandoned the kids. She had long been divorced from my oldest brother. I got a call. The boys need a place to go. That wasn't hard for me to go and get them, not because I'm great, but simply because I had a relationship with the boys, I liked the boys, I'd coached some teams with the boys, and I didn't have any boys. I didn't have any girls at that point either. It was all pretty easy for me, and further, when these boys come into our home, I'm not the one cleaning most of the house. It really, honestly, was not hard for me. Again, not because I'm great, just because this was actually kind of cool for me. But I said to Kimmy, the boys need a home. Now, in her reaction, this is not her family. These are not the girls she wanted. This is not what she would have chosen. But her reaction was to me, okay. And I go and get those guys, and I get their bunk beds, and I bring them to our house. And we do our level best to raise them. And my dear wife did her level best to raise them. Not her family. And one could say not her problem. But Jesus says, you are your brother's keeper. It wasn't the safe thing to do for her. Not the easy thing to do. But it was the Christian thing to do. And friends, I am telling you, there have to be times in your life as a follower of Jesus where you don't calculate the return on your investment. You simply say it's the right thing to do. And then out of a heart that has been given grace, you extend grace. Within 12 months after that, we had our baby that we'd been trying to have for eight years prior. And our house became really full after we had another baby. Now hear this, and I'm done. I'll finish later. Next time. But compassion comes only through identity. Compassion comes through identity. Now, here's what I mean. You and I will not have hearts of compassion if we cannot identify with those who are in need. It doesn't mean you've gone through what they've gone through. But it does mean you could see yourself in their shoes. You see that you're no better. It's not because they're just weird or strange. They're in need. And but for the grace of God, that could be you. That guy or gal down the street in your neighborhood that you're talking about. But for the grace of God, that could be you and that could be me. Jesus showed us that compassion comes through identity, did he not? The Bible tells us we do not have a high priest 
who is not burdened with our infirmities and our suffering, but we have one who was tempted and tried in all points like we are. His compassion flowed through his identifying with our plight. Now, your last point in your outline, which I'll explain next time, is that we have to be careful in relation to our speech and compassionate in relation to others and clean in relation to the world. We'll have to finish this in two weeks. We have a guest speaker next week. I encourage you all to be here for that. Friends, we're going to bow together in just a moment. And as we do, I trust that your heart is convicted as is mine. To see ourselves as not just religious people because we do the religious stuff, but to test our hearts the way God tests our hearts. How do we talk? How do we view others? And then we're going to see what values we adopt from Scripture, from Christ's example, or from the world. Let's bow together. Jesus, we thank you, our high priest, for coming down from the throne of heaven to the dusty roads of Palestine to identify with our plight. Lord, you could have simply shouted from your throne. You chose to become one of us. Lord, we have your example and we also have your commands throughout Scripture that your character is not, is not demonstrated by ceremonies and by rituals. Yes, you have told us to do those things, but they are not even close to the sum total of what it means to reflect you back to you and to an onlooking world. But rather, your character starts from the inside in us. And it restrains our speech. And it gives us a heart of compassion toward others. It helps us to see the futility of the values of the world. Oh, Lord, help me to evaluate myself by your standard. And as I evaluate myself by the right standard, I see, I see that I so woefully do not measure up. And that I most desperately need the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord God, humble us. Free us from the pride of churchianity. Free us from the pride that says, I've arrived and I can look down on you and on others because I know the lingo and I do the stuff. All the while, my tongue is unrestrained. My heart is hard toward others. And I march according to the same value system as the world. Oh Lord, change us from the inside out, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.